So let's get into 2 Thessalonians this morning. We're in chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Looking at God's faithfulness this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're faithful. Great is your faithfulness. In spite of our circumstances, in spite of things that we don't understand and hardships, just as we sang this morning, you reign. So may we be encouraged in your faithfulness. Father, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. God, would you give me grace and clarity in teaching your word this morning. We pray that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah the prophet in Lamentations, he pours out his heart uh, before God. And I appreciate his honesty. As we get into chapter 3 of Lamentations, he's saying, God, I feel that you have led me to a dark place. Have you ever felt that way? God, you've taken me to this, this difficult place. He says, God, you've broken my bones. Even to the point where he says, Lord, I feel like you've put gravel in my teeth. <laughs> I mean, he is really bummed out. He says, my hope has perished. It's completely died and it's passed away. And the reason that he's feeling this way is God's allowing for Judah to be taken captive by the Babylonians. And also, no one responds to Jeremiah's message. There's, there's no one that's responding to the truth that Jeremiah is speaking and he's being ridiculed. But in the middle of chapter 3, we see this change. We see this transition and he says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. He changes the way that he's thinking to God, you've abandoned me. God, you've led me to a dark place. God, you've broken my bones. To, Lord, you're compassionate. You're merciful. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You are my portion. That's quite a shift. And we need that in our lives as well. We, we go through our lives and we look at our circumstances and we're trying to figure out what God is doing. We get to a place of discouragement, but if we look at his character, God, you're compassionate, your everlasting love, your mercy, you have, you have new mercy and new com- compassion every morning, great is your faithfulness. Paul, as he finishes up this chapter, he focuses on God's faithfulness in the midst of trial and difficulty. Verse 1, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Paul asks for prayer. Many times Paul is telling the churches that he's praying for them, but also he will be humble enough to ask for prayer. This shows Paul's belief in the power of prayer. He knew how important it was to be praying for others, but also to be receiving prayer. Have you found that it's a lot harder to ask for prayer than to give prayer? It feels good to come alongside and to pray for someone, but it's hard to to open up and say, would you pray for me? And Paul's going through difficulty. He's going through challenge, so he asks for prayer. So I'm going to take this opportunity to both thank you for praying for us as a pastoral team and our families, and then ask for prayer. It seems that there is a, a real attack upon pastors Many times we look in the news and we see another pastor has fallen. 
in a way that grieves God's heart and hurts their families and hurts the, the body of Christ. Too many times I've been on the phone with a close friend who's a fellow pastor who has fallen into sin. And I've got to tell you, these are men that love the Lord. These are men that love their families. These are men that have faithfully served the church, and they found themselves caught up in sin, and there's great destruction that that happens. And I know I'm capable. I I know I'm capable of of falling into a sin that would, would really grieve God's heart and hurt my family, and, and hurt you guys, and so, so please be praying for me. Please be praying for my family, and our pastors here, and know that we're praying for, for you as well. Also, let's be in prayer for pastors in our community, pastors throughout our country, that, that God would restore integrity amongst pastoral leadership. We, we shouldn't be in a place where we're expressing, I'm not surprised that a pastor has fallen, but that's really become the case. We want to be in a place of, man, I I am surprised that a pastor had fallen. But there's that expectation that they would walk in godly integrity. Paul's prayer specifically is not necessarily to be in a place where he gets out of his situation, but that the word of God would run swiftly and be glorified. I love the way that that's described, that God's word would have its way. That God's word would have its way in, in Paul's life and those that Paul is sharing with. That there would be no hindrance to the word of God. Great movement happens when the word of God goes forth, when it goes out. And it falls upon fertile soil. Soils, hearts that are ready to receive the word of God. That God's word would be, be glorified. In verse 2, that we would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith. It's amazing, I guess, in all generations, there's unreasonable and wicked men. (laughs) It seems to me the the last year and a half, two years, uh, unreasonableness has been multiplying, right? But we shouldn't be surprised. There's there's always been unreasonable people. There's always been wicked people. This word wicked means perverse. And Paul has wicked people that are coming against him, persecuting him perverse people that are coming against him. He says, would you pray for me that God would deliver me uh, from them? That God would be gracious to, to allow me to come out from underneath their, their persecution. But here's the focus in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. The Lord is faithful. As Paul's asking for prayer, he goes, I know that God's going to be faithful. God's faithfulness in trial, if you're taking notes, number one. God's going to be faithful in trial. He'll establish you and he'll guard you from the evil one. Can you look back on your life in time of difficulty and see the faithfulness of God? We can't always see the faithfulness of God as we're going through the trial. We know that God's faithful, but we're not seeing it. But we look back and we go, wow, Lord, this is how you have used this in my life. You're faithful. You've guarded me from the evil one. You've established me. That there's something about trial, if we'll allow it, where God will establish us. He'll take us deeper in him. We'll see his protection in our lives. Yesterday, I had uh, the joy of doing a funeral for a man in our fellowship. His name's Michael Jackson, believe it or not. But 78 uh, years old and attended our church for, for some time. 
I really enjoyed his service and hearing more about his life. Hearing his kids share, his three kids and their, their perspective. Hearing his sister share. I got to meet uh, a friend of his that he has known for 50 years. They were roommates in college and his friend led Michael to Christ. And they remained friends through the rest of Michael's life. And it was very evident to sit back and listen and go, the Lord was faithful in Michael's life. The Lord was good in in Michael's life. And that's going to be true in our lives as well. At the end of our lives, we're going to be able to reflect and say, man, the Lord has been faithful. So plant yourself in his faithfulness in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty. Paul's going through trial. The church of Thessalonica is going through trial, but the Lord is faithful. In verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you will do and will do the things that we command you. Paul says, I trust you're going to continue to walk with the Lord. You're going to continue to press into the things of, of God. Verse 5, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Why is Paul concerned with the heart? Why is he praying for the church of Thessalonica that God would direct their hearts? Because Proverbs 4.23 tells us to keep or guard our heart because out of it flows the issues of life. We've come to know the importance of our physical heart, haven't we? how much heart disease there is, how many heart attacks there are. And there's lots of different tests to discover the health of of your heart. Well, how much more so in our spiritual heart? What's your heart condition? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It starts with the heart. If we're not paying attention to our heart, if we're not keeping our heart, our heart's going to go in a wayward direction. And Paul's saying in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial and praying that God would direct your heart specifically into the love of God. Well, wait a second. This is believers that know the love of God. Why would they be directed into the love of God? Because there's always more of God's love to know. There's always more of God's love to understand. And we tend to doubt God's love. I know that God says that he loves me, but Deep down, I think God's disappointed in me. Deep down, I think God's angry with me. Deep down, I think God's just just waiting to bring his, his judgment on me. Paul prays a similar prayer for the church of Ephesus that they would be rooted and grounded in God's love, that they would know the height and the depth and the, the width of God's love, that they would experience the love of God that passes all knowledge. This is my prayer for you this morning. This is my prayer for for me this morning is that we would know the love of God in a greater way. We go deeper into his his love. That we would understand that in the midst of trial that God is good. And that God would even use the, the trials to help us understand his love in a greater way. The second thing that we're directed into is the endurance of Christ. The endurance of Christ, the patience of Christ. This word patience, it means endurance. Jesus lived a life of endurance. He was a man of sorrows. He was rejected. What do you think it was like for 
Christ to grow up in this culture of the virgin birth. Do you think Mary's parents believed Mary and Joseph of the testimony of the conception of the Holy Spirit? If I'm Mary's dad, I'm like, Joseph, we need to go for a walk. You know? <laughs> don't, don't blame this on the Holy Spirit, buddy, right? And as you take a close read of the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus, and I'm sure Mary and Joseph, experienced great scrutiny. There's comments made, made to Jesus, that at least we know who our father is. He's rejected. He's rejected by his own family. His half-brothers and sisters, Mary and Joseph, went on to have kids, rejected Christ until the resurrection. His hometown rejected him, Nazareth. Much of the rest of Israel embraced Christ, but not Nazareth. They were filled with unbelief. They looked at Jesus and said, aren't you the carpenter's son? Didn't you grow up down the street? And now you're claiming to be the Messiah? And though there was momentary faith in Israel, over time all of Israel rejected Christ, crying out, crucify me, crucify me. Jesus endured. Why did he endure? Hebrews tells us because of the joy that was set before him. He was looking forward to what the suffering was going to produce. Being reunited with the Father. Being able to inherit us as his bride. As he's on the cross, the physical suffering, being spit upon, his beard being ripped out, nails, whipped, the crown of thorns, mocked. But the spiritual suffering of he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. The sin of the rapist upon Christ. The sin of the abuser upon Christ. The sin of the murderer upon Christ. The sin of genocide upon Christ. My sin upon Christ. Your sin upon Christ. To the point where he cries out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he endured. He endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. It's God's heart to take us deeper into the endurance of Christ. That as we suffer and that we go through pain, we look forward to the joy that's set before us. And the joy is eternal life. We're going to have trial in this life. We're never going to be able to engineer this life to the point where there's no suffering. But as we go through suffering, we look forward to the joy. What's the suffering going to result into that God would then produce in us endurance? I, I find endurance to be such a mental game. My family and I, we enjoy going over here to Trinity Fitness. It's right behind the church, right over here to my, my right. And yesterday I was there at 7.30 in the morning, and the workout was four movements. And I'm thinking, oh, I got this. Just, just four movements. Started with kettlebell swing and then push press and a few, few other movements. But the trick was you would do 10 of each movement and then have to go through those rounds 10 times. So it resulted in 100 reps of, of each movement. 
He had 27 minutes to complete it, 27 minutes of work. Again, I'm thinking this doesn't sound too bad. Feeling a little prideful, like maybe I'll be done in 20. I do my first round pretty quickly. I did it too fast. I went out of the gates too fast. And literally by the time I'm in the third round, I was a crushed puppy dog. I'm thinking there's no way that I'm gonna finish this. Maybe I should go to a lighter weight, you know? Maybe it's time to just, just cry, cry uncle. And it was all up here. It was up here in my, in my mind. I began to think, I, I, I've got to just endure. I've got to just endure, endure this pain. I've been through workouts before. I, I think I can do this. And by the time I got to round seven, it's like, okay, I've crossed over the threshing floor and we're going to make it to the end. But I was really wrestling up here in my mind. And that's the same way it is in life. When we're really suffering, it's up here. It's a mental game. It, it's a mental battle. And that's where Jeremiah was at. And so we've got to redirect our, our minds to Christ to think about his endurance, what he went through for the joy that was set before him. Say, okay, Lord, strengthen me. Would you strengthen me to endure? But the joy's going to come. No doubt the joy's going to come. Eternity's going to come, and we're going to forever be with the Lord. In verse 6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions which we received from us. Apparently, those, there were those that were walking contrary to the Scriptures and even trying to lead others astray. And so Paul says to withdraw from them. There's a process that goes into this, Matthew 18, of confronting one-on-one, then with two or three, and then bringing it to the elders of the church. It's not something to take lightly, but Paul is very bold in this command. He says it's a command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If someone's not walking according to the traditions, which would be the word of God, would be Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Paul's pointing out the false teacher, and then he's showing his life as one that genuinely cares, as a shepherd who really cares. Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. Paul says, I hope you see my labor of love that you would trust us. We didn't come asking for any finances. We came and labored, providing for our own needs. Paul was a tent maker, and he would labor with his hands so that he wouldn't be a burden to anyone. In verse 9, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul lays out that someone can labor spiritually and receive finances to help support that ministry. But Paul chose to lay down that privilege, lay down that authority so that he wouldn't be a burden and provide that godly example. So as you sort this out of who you're going to receive from, who you're going to allow to pastor you, that's a, that's a big decision, is you're not looking for perfection. Pastors are not, not perfect, but you should be able to look and see a godly example. Jesus said you're gonna know them by your fruits, and so Paul's really saying, examine the fruits of those that you're, you're listening to. In verse 10, for even now, when we were with you, 
For even when we were with you, excuse me, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. We're going to see God's faithfulness in work, number two. Again, Paul's really strong here, and he says, when we were with you, we gave you this command, if you don't work, then you can't eat. This is assuming that someone is able to work, that they have the, a physical ability to be able to work. It's a whole other story if someone is not physically able to work. But if you're able to work, then you should work, because through work, God provides for our needs to be able to eat. So let's consider this a little bit deeper. Let's, let's look at the theology of work for a few moments. You're like, oh, that sounds like a lot of fun, right? A lot of times for us, work is pretty much like, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I got bills, so I got to go to work. But there's so much more to that in the scriptures. We find when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them work to do before the fall. He commissioned them to take care of the garden even before sin entered into the world. A lot of times we think work is just a result of sin. We have work because we're in a sinful world, but that's not the case. God in and of himself is a worker. He created. God spoke and everything came into existence over a six-day period. Not that it was hard for God, but he put work into it. And he actually enjoyed his work. He checks it out and he gives his self-commentary on his work and goes, Oh, it was good. I did a good job on those birds. I did a good job on the ocean. Then he gets to Adam and he goes, Adam's alone. That's not so good. We've got to create Eve. Eve needs to enter into the picture. So God in and of himself is a, is a worker. He's a creator. He's given us the ability to create. We know in heaven there's going to be work. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. Could you imagine work in heaven with, with no sin? We don't have our sin to deal with, other people's sin to deal with, don't have the second law of thermodynamics where things are going from order to to disorder. So that's the redeemed side of work. Where's the fallen side of work? Well, when Adam and Eve sinned. Part of the result of sin was God said, you're going to have to deal with weeds. And weeds have entered into all kinds of work, made work difficult. Don't you hate weeds? So whenever we do work, whether it's work at, at home or work in our jobs, there's going to be weeds to be able to, to deal with. But in work provides the opportunity to worship God. Paul writes and says, whatever your hands find to do, do it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. So we don't have to work for men. We're not even working for ourselves. Say, I'm going to work to glorify the Lord. Now, let's be honest. There's a lot of days where that's not the case. That's not the case at home. We're not doing work at home under the Lord. We're doing it grumbling and complaining. There's a lot of times at work we're not doing it under the Lord. We're, we're doing it grumbling and complaining. But there is that opportunity to be able to do our work under the Lord. See work as a blessing from the Lord. If you have the opportunity to work, you've got the health to work, it's through work that God's going to provide for your needs and also provide the opportunity to be able to give to his work, to give to others. Men, God calls us to be providers for our family. Paul says that if we don't provide for our families, then we're worse than an unbeliever. So as we commit in marriage, 
to our wife and to our kids, ultimately that responsibility comes on us to be able to work, then God then brings the provision for the family. In the law, in the Old Testament, it's really interesting the way that God took care of those who were in need, whether it was the widow or the orphan or the stranger, just, just someone that was in need, is as you farmed, you would leave a portion of your field to allow the poor, those that are in need, to come and receive food, but you didn't harvest it for them. The law is specific in that. So that they could come and they could work, and by God doing that, he was giving them their dignity. Wouldn't you rather have the opportunity to go work for the day and receive food than to just receive a handout? God could have wrote it in the law to say, all right, here's the way that this is going to work. Go ahead and harvest it. Have it all ready to go and hand it out. But he didn't say that. He says, leave a portion of your field where they can come and they can, can harvest it. As we work, we'll see God's faithfulness. As we put our hand to what he has provided for us to do, we're going to see his faithfulness in provision. There's protection in work, verse 11. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. So Paul's dealing with those inside of the church that were able to work, that had the opportunity to work, but were unwilling to work. And Paul's saying, it's time to get to work. And instead of working, they're being busybodies. If we have too much time on our hands, we get ourselves involved in a whole bunch of business that's not ours. It's really the devil's workshop. So, so work protects us from sin, protects us from being a busybody. Verse 12, not those, not those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So, so Paul's addressing those who are unwilling to work and saying you should work and you should work in quietness and then have the joy of eating your own bread. You remember your first paycheck from your first job? Well, you discovered what taxes were. <laughs> but also you're like, wow, this is pretty cool. I got, I got a paycheck and I've got some money to, to be able to spend, and I've got some decisions that I can make from that point going, going forward. And, and there is a, a sense of satisfaction in a good way that comes from eating your own bread. The Lord provided this from working hard. Notice that God is calling us to work in quietness. Work in quietness. Just be faithful. Okay, I'm hired to do this job. I'm going to go do this job. I'm going to do it under the Lord. I'm going to mind my own business. I'm going to work in, in quietness. And I understand it's a difficult time right now on the work front and being faced with a lot of difficult decisions. To the best that we can, let's focus on the Lord. Let's focus on the job that we've been hired to do. As we do that, God is honored and God is glorified. Think of Daniel having to work for Nebuchadnezzar this pagan society, this pagan culture, I'm sure there's a lot of days where he got up and said, I need to do my job in quietness. We know Daniel never backed down. He didn't compromise. When he was called on the carpet, he stayed true to the Lord, but he also stayed true to the Lord in working in faithfulness. In verse 13, 
But as you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul knows the tendency is to get weary in the work that God has called us to do. So he exhorts us to to not grow weary in doing good. God's faithfulness and weariness. We're going to see God's faithfulness and, and weariness. What if you say this morning, I am weary. It's not that I'm, I'm growing weary. I, I am weary. I'm tired. I'm, I'm wore out. And, and I'm tired in the work that God has called me to do. I'm tired in the work that I've got to do on the home front. I'm tired of the work that I've got to do Monday through Friday to, to provide for the family. Well, Jesus gives us a great invitation. I want to read it to you this morning. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, just listen to the words of Christ. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, are you weak? Are you tired? Come to me, all who are burdened, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take the yoke of Christ and discover his rest. Jesus said, cast your cares upon me. Allow him to be able to carry the burdens that you're carrying this morning. As we spend time with the Lord, as we come to Jesus, he takes that weariness and he replaces it with refreshment. He renews our strength. In Galatians 6, 9, it says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The fruit's coming. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't, don't grow, grow weary. You're right where God wants you to be. Stay faithful in that marriage. Stay committed to those kids. Keep going to work. Maybe it's a really difficult work situation. Lord, this is where you have me. Until you open another door, I'm going to be faithful. And Lord, help me not grow weary while doing good. In verse 14, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with them that they may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. God's faithfulness, number four, in discipline. In discipline. Paul is calling out those who are disobedient to God's word. And Paul says, don't fellowship with them so that they would come to a place where they're ashamed. They're ashamed of their sin and there's repentance and they come back to, to the Lord. Don't treat them like an enemy. Don't be mean to them or disrespectful, but admonish them the way that you would admonish a brother. This is one of the more difficult aspects of church life and it's church discipline. It's if one of us gets to the place where we're in rebellion against God and rebellion against his word, that ultimately church discipline has to take place to say, look, if you're going to continue in this sin, we can't keep fellowship in the same way. We're going to keep admonishing you, but we can't keep in company the same way so that you would realize the, the seriousness of your sin. I've seen God use church discipline in people's lives. I've heard testimony. There's been a few over the years that have come to me and said, you know what, Pastor Eric? At my church in another state years ago, I was a believer. I got off track, was in disobedience, and my church actually 
implemented church discipline on me. And I didn't like it. And I got hard-hearted. But over time, God used that in my life, and I came back to the Lord, and I'm walking with the Lord, and they've been walking with the Lord for years, and I would never expect that about them. The Lord used it in their life. This is part of a biblical community that we would keep each other accountable in this way. So if you ever have a, a brother or sister in Christ that challenges you in the area of sin, is stop and listen and go, wow, this is someone who really loves and cares for me that they would speak to me the truth of God's word in this area of sin. If you're ever in the place where you've got to challenge your brother or sister in Christ, do it in humility. Make sure that we're not just confronting them over a personal issue, that it is actually a, a sin issue, and go to them from the perspective of, I want to win a brother. I want to win a sister. How would I want to be approached if I was in that place of sin? But we can be blinded from sin. And so Paul's saying God's going to be faithful. He's going to be faithful even in the midst of church discipline. In verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the source of peace. When the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee, the storm is raging, Jesus comes and he calms the storm. He says, it is I. In the storm that we're going through, when we talk about God's faithfulness, we're left with the very presence of Jesus. He's with you in the storm. And may he give you peace always. That word always really stands out to me. That we can always be in a place of peace because Jesus is with us. The Lord be with you. Jesus is with you. As you go your way in a few moments, Jesus is with you. As you go to work, Jesus is with you. As you drive on academy and powers, Jesus is with you. And we need him to be with us. He's with us. Paul signs off with his own hand. He would speak these letters and then would sign off in his own handwriting and he leaves us in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is not the beginning point and the ending point. It's every point in between. We need God's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor in our lives. I want to leave you this morning where we began with the words of Jeremiah. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we're not consumed, because his compassion fails not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we express this morning that you're faithful. Great is your faithfulness. We thank you that your compassion and your mercy are new every morning. We need that every morning. Your everlasting love, your mercy towards us. You're our portion. You're who we look to to satisfy. You're the bread of life. You're the living water. 
and we hold on to your faithfulness in the midst of trial. I pray for those that are in difficulty this morning, that you would direct their hearts to the love of God, that they would know that they're loved by you. Would you direct their hearts to the endurance of Christ? Would they see the joy that's set before them? Father, we know you're going to be faithful in work. I pray that you would provide work for those that, that need a job, that are out of a job looking for a job. Would you be gracious to provide work? Lord, for, for those that have work, would you strengthen them? I know it's tough times. There's a lot of confusion and questions, but would you help us to, to work in quietness and in faithfulness? Know when to speak up and, and when to be quiet. Lord, those that are dealing with tough bosses and difficult schedules, just, just fill them with your spirit. For the work that we have to do at home, the laundry, the groceries, the weeds in the yard, the cars that need to be fixed, all that type of stuff, we want to do that unto you. We thank you for the ability to work. We're created in your image. Lord, you're good. You're, you're faithful. So Lord, we rest in you. Would you yourself, Jesus, provide peace for our hearts? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.